All right, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. If you're new with us today and you'd like to follow along, you can pick up the Black Pew Bible in front of you. And we're going to be on page 984, Colossians chapter 3. This week we are continuing our series expounding upon what we believe it means to experience God's love at Westchester. Experiencing God's love is part of our mission statement. The pastors came to agreement that we needed to dig into this idea more and put more substance around what we mean by experiencing God's love. And so we filled out this statement by saying that experiencing God's love means we are going to be transformed continually and that we will know him deeply. And next week we're going to talk about being eager to share his love with others. But the statement driving our study this week is that if we are experiencing God's love, we will worship vibrantly. We're going to mainly be focused on Colossians 3, 15 through 17 today, but we're going to begin at the top of the chapter with the first four verses. So before we read that, let me pray for us. Father God, would you reveal yourself through your word today? Would you bring us understanding? Would you open our hearts to receive uh, truth and hope and your love and also correction and also instruction on how to grow? All for your glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at verses one through four. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you want to experience the love of God, we have to start right here. If you have faith in Christ, your experience doesn't start with the things that you do. It begins with what is true about you. You have died with Christ. You have raised with Christ to new life. You are in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with Christ, meaning you rest secure, you're tucked away, your status is immovable. And all of this is true because Christ paid the debt that your sin created. Christ laid down his own life and died the death that your sin required of you. And if you trust in Christ, you are united with him, one with him, in his death and resurrection and ascension. This new abundant life that we all desire, it's built on this foundation, on this gospel truth, that you have died and raised to new life. It doesn't start when you begin doing good things instead of bad things. It doesn't start with clothing yourself with love and good deeds. It all starts with what Christ did on your behalf. So in terms of motivation, this means that we don't spend our whole life working to make this true or just hoping that I'm good enough that it will be true at some point. It means that we rest in the fact that it is true and that becomes the starting point rather than the ending point. I have new life here and now because Christ finished that work in his death and resurrection. 
So if all this is true, then what? If you have been raised with Christ, as the passage says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not things that are on earth. The key to having vibrant worship is responding to what Christ has already done by setting our sights on him, by fixing our gaze on Christ. Shifting away from this world into the unseen realm where I am already sitting securely with my Savior. But if all this is true and we can just turn our eyes to Jesus, why would worship ever become stale or boring? By saying that we believe there should be vibrant worship, we're already conceding the fact that that's not always the case. Why would it ever be lackluster or cold or dull? Well, in brief, we allow things to get in the way. We allow things to steal our focus. We're quick to blame the music or the preaching and say it's just not doing it for us. But in reality, putting off the old self is hard work. And putting on the new self takes practice and discipline. We want to have this ecstatic experience on a Sunday, but really we're so focused on the here and now that we fail to set our sights on what's above. But the good news is this. Christ already did the heavy lifting. He did the work of saving us from our sins and putting us in right relationship with God and with one another. Because Christ has made us new, we can cultivate vibrant worship. And this is where we focus in on our passage today. We can cultivate vibrant worship by practicing the peace of Christ, overflowing with song, and abounding in thanksgiving. So to look at this more clearly, uh, go down to verse 12. We'll read 12 through 17, and we're going to focus in on 15 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Take a look again at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. For whatever reason, I find that word peace to be one of those words that I kind of just skim over when I'm reading. I take it for granted, and I think, I think of just a worldly application, like it's just chill out, you know? Just have good vibes. Don't, don't worry. Be happy. But if all of that can be accomplished by a tie-dye t-shirt and putting two fingers in the air then it kind of makes you wonder, what does Christ have to do with that? And I found this verse from John 14, 27 to be helpful. 
where Christ himself is talking about peace, and he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. In its essence, that world peace means that strife has ended. There's an absence of tension and turmoil. The world gives an appearance of peace, but not a lasting peace. Christ is offering us not just a temporary mental ascent to a more mindful living. He's giving us actual substance. And the world may give us this by suggesting a meditation or maybe suggesting a drug that gets us out and away from the turmoil of the world. But Christ says, peace I give to you because he purchased this peace with his own blood. And we must come to recognize as Christians that there is no longer conflict between us and God because Christ bore the punishment on the cross. There's not a tension there because Christ has reconciled us. And so this peace that we're talking about, it's not just a wishful, momentary escape, but it's this everlasting rest that we all enter into because of Christ. And so Paul says, let that peace rule in your hearts. And the primary application here in this context is how we treat one another because of that. The peace that Christ has given us spills over in our relationships. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We act with patience and kindness because Christ showed us these things. And this idea is worthy of a sermon in itself, but I want us to consider today what effect the peace of Christ has on our worship of God. When we enter into worship on a Sunday, and indeed flowing into every day in our walk with God, we are able to fix our eyes on Christ and allow his peace to rule in our hearts. Because Christ paid that cost, there is no more strife between us. There's no more tension between us and God. We can enter into that rest of right relationship with him. And I want to stress, too, that this isn't a relationship that is merely lacking in guilt. It's a relationship that is one of comfort and closeness. I was picturing it in my head like this this week. Do you know that feeling when you're in a crowded room and you're there alone and really you're kind of like scanning the room, you're just searching for a familiar face, someone to share this experience with and all the introverts are like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you might even feel that here today. There's, there's so many people in the room and and maybe you feel alone or you keep looking at the door for a familiar face to walk in. And then finally, someone walks in that you recognize, but this person, you're going to feel even more stuck with them. Or you're going to feel leaving drained by, by conversating with them. So everyone's inner introvert comes in and you start you know, blocking your eyes, make sure you don't make eye contact with them, right? But anyway, you keep looking at the door. Another familiar face walks in. This person is fine. You don't have conflict with them, but you feel like maybe you'd be keeping up the conversation or you'd have to kind of endure all of those like dull, dead spots in the talking. It's not really great, but it's also, it's not bad. But you just kind of want some companionship, so maybe you consider getting their attention and calling them over. But just then, your best friend comes through the door. 
More than that, they come through the door and you both make eye contact immediately and smiles fill both of your faces. It's not even a question of whether or not you're going to sit together, it's a done deal. And the difference is not just a lack of guilt or tension in your relationship, it's a deeper sense of knowing with this person that there's no pretense There's not work to do in this relationship. You've already walked so many paths together through grief and sorrow and pain and also through joys and triumphs and blessings. You are overjoyed to see them because when it felt like it was going to be a lonesome trial, you instead get to be at rest with a person who knows you completely. This is what it means for our personal worship. That no matter what state we enter into this room on a Sunday, I want you to know the access that you have to your Savior. Because we are in Christ, we can set our eyes above where he is seated. And when we do, it's like spotting that person across the room. We can can just give a big exhale. And, And just like our friend, we cannot wait to talk to Jesus to tell him what's been happening, our joys and our fears. We can be at rest because we have infinite access to him. You can be at peace because there is no strife. There's no series of hoops we have to jump through to get him to notice you. You get to be you, fully known, fully loved. This is the peace of Christ that he purchased and he has given to you fully. So we can put that peace into practice. When we come before God in prayer or in song, I want you to recognize the access that you have to him. Recognize the invitation. Breathe a little deeper. Set your mind on him. So many things in this life are vying for our attention. Many things are causing you stress and anxiety. Many things cause you grief. But wherever you are at in your life, take a breath and look above and recognize you are not alone. You can be at peace even now because your life is hidden in Christ. You are secure, you are known, and you are loved. If you want to have a more vibrant worship, put the peace of Christ into practice. Let it rule your heart. Take advantage of the access you have to God and be at rest today. Let's continue on, though, with verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This verse brings up the curious dynamic about our worship, which is the interaction of God's word and the expression of singing. The word of Christ does not come to dwell accidentally. It is only by careful devotion of the eyes and the ears, a concentration and consideration of the scriptures, a willful pondering and studying. All of this to say, The word of Christ dwelling richly only comes by your brain. It is by necessity and an intellectual activity. But this is where it's interesting. We are not to be merely intellectual Christians. 
If the word dwells richly, it also richly overflows out of our mouth in song, which is an inherently emotional and expressive action. We don't get to be only intellectual Christians who are stoic and emotionless before the Lord. And we also don't get to be emotional and experiential and leave the doctrine stuff to those brainy thinker Christians. It's to be both. One of the main things standing in the way of vibrant worship is trying to separate those two things. Paul prescribes that the word of Christ dwell richly and out of your mouth come psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs coming from hearts that are filled with thankfulness. If we are to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly, our songs should reflect a careful study and understanding of the word. There should be depth rather than shallow thinking. Remember that this is the application Paul gives after the reason for all of it, that we have been transformed by Christ. We died with him, we raised with him, we are one with him. And there is an infinite amount of songs that we could write about that gospel. And there is an unsearchable depth to God's love. And we're only going to scratch the surface of that in this lifetime. But we should devote ourselves in this lifetime to digging, to scratching that surface, to understand our, our great God. So, one of the driving principles of the worship ministry here <clears throat> is that we prioritize songs that have theologically and doctrinally rich and accurate lyrics. We take very seriously the words that we are putting in your mouth to sing to your God. And secondly, we want to have songs that are singable by the congregation and musically rich. And we try to live right where those two things intersect. But the trend in American churches is to soften the intellect side and put more weight on the how it feels and how it sounds side of our worship. <clears throat> But having doctrinally rich music doesn't just mean using big theological terms in a song. I mean, fortunately, nothing rhymes with superlapsarianism anyway. <laughs> Ask Chuck what that means after the service. It doesn't just mean big intellectual thinking and long phrases, but sometimes it does mean that. Another one of our principles of worship is to have a healthy diet, you have to eat your vegetables. To have a healthy worship diet, we have to pack it full of things that are going to be sustaining us spiritually. The empty calorie sugar high that feels good momentarily, it leads to a crash later. And much of the time, that is what you are finding in the popular mass appeal Christian music. A lot of what's out there might feel good or sound good to you, but ultimately is not nourishing to you spiritually. So we have these convictions and principles that guide our worship here. <clears throat> Excuse me. That guide our worship here. Other churches, they have their own convictions. But if we're feeling disconnected in worship for one reason or another, we can start to play that comparison game my friend's church, or my kid's church, that big popular church in town. They play the song that I hear on the radio. They play music by these artists. They use tracks in their worship. They have this loud, energetic band. 
whatever it may be. How did that work when you were growing up and you went to your parents and said, I was over at Kevin's house. They have so many snacks there. <laughs> at Ke Kevin's mom said, I'm allowed to have as many snacks as I want when I'm at their house. Kevin gets dessert every night. For me growing up, it was name brand snacks. Kevin has name brand snacks at his house. Clancy didn't make any of his snacks. <laughs> Glad to know we have some Aldi shoppers in here. <laughs> but as a parent, now as a parent, I understand the response, I'm not Kevin's parent, I'm your parent. And no, I'm not your dad, but myself and the others, we're the ones looking out for your well-being and attempting to give you a nourishing diet. See, we all want this vibrant worship, this deep emotional connection in worship, and then if we feel like something's off our flesh, it begins to covet what we see others having because the grass is greener somewhere else. And this leads to contempt, and this leads to blaming others. If only they would change, then I would be better. If this was more to my liking, then I would grow spiritually. Maybe if I felt the worship more, maybe I would find it easier to fight my temptation. The thing standing in the way of vibrant worship might actually be a lie that your preferences are the things that need to be satisfied. And speaking of preferences, Paul dives headfirst into the greatest of the worship wars, song choice. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In my 20 years as a worship leader, I have heard outrageous justifications for why only a narrow selection of songs should be used in worship. Some will say that the church is only supposed to sing from the Psalms. Well, when Jesus left the Last Supper, he and his disciples sang a hymn, and several sections of the epistles are thought to be hymns from the early church. Oh, well then the church should probably just sing hymns. Okay, go ahead and define hymn for me. Is it just songs written between 1560 and 1920? Is it just songs that were put into a red book? Or is it just songs that can be sung in four parts? Well, never mind all that. Just don't sing any old songs because they're outdated. They're not relevant to a contemporary audience. Well, that's just foolishness because it doesn't help us adhere to this text right here, and it doesn't help us follow the example given to us in the Psalms and by the early church. And besides, who doesn't want to sing It Is Well With My Soul? I'm thankful that broadly in churches, a lot of this thinking has simmered down, but a lot of damage was done for 30 to 40 years by churches battling over this. And I don't know if Paul could have been any clearer than to say, we're to sing all kinds of songs. Besides, the whole point of this text is the unity and the oneness of the body. And in our modern church history, we have such clear example with worship where we let musical preference get in the way of the very harmony, kindness, and unity that we're supposed to have here. So enough of thinking that a song is better or more powerful because it was written before a certain date or in a particular time frame or the fact that it is in a red book rather than on a screen, songs are songs. 
there is a lot of terrible hymns out there, both musically and theologically. I'm just going to let that out there as a fact. <laughs> Another principle in our worship here is that we try to cast a wide net. We strive for variety. And we're not requiring a certain amount of so-called hymns or a certain amount of so-called contemporary songs. With the onset of the internet, we have access to millions upon millions of songs from hundreds of years of church history. And so we get the task of making our own hymnal. But it's one that's not bound by board and cloth. It's digital and it's ever-expanding. And so we seek to introduce songs that we want to be our songs at Westchester. We desire to find songs that are rich enough that we could be singing them for decades and they can still hit home. So, did you not like the music this week? Well, it wasn't made for you alone. Your taste will not line up 100% of the time. But we strive the hardest to say that the lyrics we chose are helpful to you and worthy of praise to our God. And secondly, we strive to make music that is accessible to you even if it's not your preferred style or vocal range. And since I'm starting to rant, let me bring us back to center here. <laughs> Just imagine the director's cut of this sermon where I let all of my worship leader baggage out on you. <laughs> we need to be intellectual Christians and expressive Christians. If the word of Christ is dwelling richly in us, it will overflow into praise of all kinds. We cannot shortcut to more vibrant worship by either cutting out the head or the heart. We also cannot blame others for not feeding our preferences. We have to let the word of Christ do its work in our hearts. If it doesn't pour forth praise from your mouth, you have not learned it in your heart. If it does not well up in joy, you may not understand it. If it brings obligation and guilt, it does not dwell richly, but rather bitterly. Set your mind above. Set your mind on Christ, your position with Christ, what he did to bring you there. Do not give your attention to earthly things like song preference and worship. Let Christ, his peace, and his word fill up your hearts and come ready to respond to him with your lips. Let's look now at verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you are seeking a really practical way to set your mind on Christ and to let his word dwell in your hearts, I suggest you check out one of our simple Bible studies. I know we talked about this during our prayer time today. But we have men's and women's studies Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8, where we simply pray, open the scripture, discuss, and then pray for one another. There's no outside reading. There's no extra book. It's just the Bible. And I, I say this because this has been a huge blessing for me this year. Because when we arrive and we enter into prayer, I feel like that's a place where I can just take a deep breath and enjoy the brothers around me and, and receive the word. And, and so this is where I have been putting the peace of Christ into practice this year. I'd be happy to tell you more about that later. Um, 
But the reason I bring this up, the reason that was in my mind, is because we've been studying Colossians this year. And the, the brothers just finished the, the Colossians study, and the women just started the study of Colossians. But because we were studying this, when this topic came up, this passage was in my mind. And in studying this, what jumped out at me this time is how much of the book of Colossians is about thankfulness. Even just here in these verses, be thankful with thankfulness in your hearts. Do everything giving thanks to God the Father. Thankfulness and a grateful heart seem to be the key to clothing ourselves with the new life in Christ. And if it's key for that, then it's key for cultivating a vibrant worship. So because we have been made new, we have countless things to thank our God for. It's the old self that comes seeking only for himself. It's the old self that is come, coming to seek for own gain and our own enjoyment. And this is why Paul calls us to seek what is above and not what is earthly. Our natural selves want to do a lot of navel-gazing, seeking for meaning and fulfillment inwardly, looking at the here and now and my earthly experience and my present condition. And Paul is calling us to put that off, put that to death in order to gain life by seeking after Christ. Psalm 100 verse 4 is helpful in calling us to worship, saying, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. And Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What these verses show us about coming before the Lord in worship is coming prepared, coming intentionally, bringing thoughtful worship to our God. How many times do we come into church lackadaisically, giving no thought to why we're here? Just thinking about getting church out of the way, focused on my lunch plans or my nap plans, all I have to accomplish the rest of today in order to get ready for the work week. We come thoughtless and unprepared to offer our God praise. We often come with ungrateful hearts, not recognizing the grace of the body of Christ that is set before us. Not recognizing that apart from Jesus making us new, we would have no desire to even be here. We come unprepared, and then we have the audacity to be critical of the worship. The worship didn't move me. It didn't make me feel in the right way. The pastor wasn't engaging enough, or he spoke too fast, or he spoke too slow, or too long. There are plenty of things we can feel justified in being critical of in a church service, even in our own church service. But between you and the Lord, you need to search to see if you have a critical spirit that is sinful. A critical spirit is the fruit of an ungrateful heart. And a lot of times what is standing in the way of us worshiping God in a meaningful and vibrant way is our own attitudes. We come to tell others exactly what they should be doing, how they should be acting, what they should be wearing, exactly how the service should be run. This is a sinful attitude of pride and contempt. 
And I find for myself that when I'm prone to being cynical and critical in worship, it is most often when I have sin in my heart that I am not dealing with. But I want you to hear me out. I'm not fearful of hearing feedback or criticism about a service. I'm also not trying to shield myself and make you fearful to give feedback. I also don't want you to think that I'm preaching some kind of revenge sermon at every person who's ever given feedback. (laughs) But the critical spirit is just something we don't talk about enough. Because all of us, and myself absolutely included, all of us at one time or another have just had a bad attitude at church and we let ourselves be critical. And this is why I say, take your criticisms before the Lord and search your heart, especially before sharing feedback. Let the Spirit work on your attitude. Prayer is going to be the primary way that we combat this. But Paul's words here are helpful. We can cultivate thankfulness and come with grateful hearts. We can set our eyes on Christ. We can lift up our eyes to him. And when we raise our eyes above our circumstances, we can see where our life is truly hidden, where my station truly is, that my life here is a blip and a vapor in the course of eternity. But God is greater, more powerful, more awesome, more gracious and loving and caring, and I have been counted worthy of entering into his magnificence rather than my inflated sense of self-worth. I need to be lifted out of myself and into the reality of his presence. And I can do this by turning my heart to gratitude, by looking at every little piece of my reality and seeing God's fingerprint in every atom and molecule. I can recall the timeline of my life and see how God's loving care has guided me along. I can ponder on where I would be had God actually given me the evil desires in my heart. And I can consider how I continue in rebellion, seeking after my own selfish desires and seeking after worldly pleasures and trying to make myself great. And yet God continues to love me and be patient with me and he calls me to repentance and he reminds me that I have been made new in Christ. And if pondering these things doesn't simultaneously break your heart and make you want to burst out in song, then I question what is dwelling in you richly. Did you come prepared to worship your God today? Did you come before him with thanksgiving? Did you bring an offering of praise to him today? We still have time left in our service. Use this time to turn your heart to him. Contemplate his grace. Contemplate his mercy. Fill your heart with remembrance of his love and kindness towards you and overflow with thankfulness. In our day and age, I think we take worship for granted. Because it seems like churches have just kind of figured out the formula and it's there, it's waiting for you to just come and receive it. And we take for granted that worship must be cultivated in our hearts. And it's hard work because the old man ruled in our hearts for way too long. But the good news is, in Christ, you've died to your old self and you have been raised with him and united with him so that you have new life here and now. 
And so rather than turmoil that sin brings, we can fill our hearts with the peace of Christ. Rather than feeding our earthly passions, we get to feed on the words of Christ that burst out of us in song. And rather than an ungrateful, critical spirit, we can be lifted out of ourselves and set our minds on the things that are above, that are lasting and forever. This is how we cultivate a vibrant worship life. And this is how we experience God's love. Let's pray. Father, may this be true in us. May this be true for us today. May we set our eyes on you. May you stir up our affections to be reminded of your great love and grace and mercy. Father, turn us to you now that we may see you seated high above, worthy of all praise and honor, and that we know that we are united with you in that, and that we can have that peace and overflow in song with thankfulness now. We pray in Jesus' name.